Chapters two and three of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two. While this exchange of pleasantries took place between the two, Ralph Touchett wandered away a little, with his usual slouching gait, his hands in his pockets, and his little rowdyish terrier at his heels. His face was turned toward the house, but his eyes were bent musingly on the lawn so that he had been an object of observation to a person who had just made her appearance in the ample doorway for some moments before he perceived her. His attention was called to her by the conduct of his dog, who had suddenly darted forward with a little volley of shrill barks, in which the note of welcome, however, was more sensible than that of defiance. The person in question was a young lady, who seemed immediately to interpret the greeting of the small beast. He advanced with great rapidity and stood at her feet, looking up and barking hard, whereupon without hesitation she stooped and caught him in her hands, holding him face to face while he continued his quick chatter. His master now had had time to follow and see that Bunchy's new friend was a tall girl in a black dress, who at first sight looked pretty. She was bareheaded as if she were staying in the house a fact which conveyed perplexity to the son of its master, conscious of that immunity from visitors which had for some time been rendered necessary by the latter's ill health. Meanwhile the two other gentlemen had also taken note of the newcomer. "'Dear me, who's that strange woman?' Mr. Touchett had asked. "'Perhaps it's Mrs. Touchett's niece, the independent young lady,' Lord Warburton suggested. I think she must be, from the way she handles the dog." The collie, too, had now allowed his attention to be diverted, and he trotted toward the young lady in the doorway, slowly setting his tail in motion as he went. "'But where's my wife, then?' murmured the old man. "'I suppose the young lady has left her somewhere. That's a part of the independence.' The girl spoke to Ralph, smiling, while she still held up the terrier. "'Is this your little dog, sir?' He was mine a moment ago, but you've suddenly acquired a remarkable air of property in him." "'Couldn't we share him?' asked the girl. "'He's such a perfect little darling.' Ralph looked at her a moment. She was unexpectedly pretty. "'You may have him altogether,' he then replied. The young lady seemed to have a great deal of confidence, both in herself and in others, but this abrupt generosity made her blush. "'I ought to tell you that I'm probably your cousin,' she brought out, putting down the dog. "'And here's another,' she added quickly, as the collie came up. "'Probably,' the young man exclaimed, laughing. "'I supposed it was quite settled. Have you arrived with my mother?' "'Yes, half an hour ago.' "'And has she deposited you and departed again?' "'No, she went straight to her room, and she told me that if I should see you, I was to say to you that you must come to her there at a quarter to seven. The young man looked at his watch. "'Thank you very much. I shall be punctual.' And then he looked at his cousin. "'You're very welcome here. I'm delighted to see you.' She was looking at everything with an eye that denoted clear perception, at her companion, at the two dogs, at the two gentlemen under the trees, at the beautiful scene that surrounded her. I've never seen anything so lovely as this place. I've been all over the house. It's too enchanting. I'm sorry you should have been here so long without our knowing it. 
Your mother told me that in England people arrived very quietly, so I thought it was all right. Is one of those gentlemen your father? Yes, the elder one, the one sitting down, said Ralph. The girl gave a laugh. I don't suppose it's the other. Who's the other? He's a friend of ours, Lord Warburton. Oh, I hoped there would be a lord. It's just like a novel. And then, oh, you adorable creature, she suddenly cried, stooping down and picking up the small dog again. She remained standing where they had met, making no offer to advance or to speak to Mr. Touchett, and while she lingered so near the threshold, slim and charming, her interlocutor wondered if she expected the old man to come and pay her his respects. American girls were used to a great deal of deference, and it had been intimated that this one had a high spirit. Indeed, Ralph could see that in her face. "'Won't you come and make acquaintance with my father?' he nevertheless ventured to ask. "'He's old and infirm. He doesn't leave his chair.' "'Ah, poor man, I'm very sorry,' the girl exclaimed, immediately moving forward. "'I got the impression from your mother that he was rather, rather intensely active.' Ralph Touchett was silent a moment. "'She hasn't seen him for a year.' "'Well, he has a lovely place to sit. Come along, little hound.' "'It's a dear old place,' said the young man, looking sidewise at his neighbour. "'What's his name?' she asked, her attention having again reverted to the terrier. "'My father's name?' "'Yes,' said the young lady with amusement. "'But don't tell him I asked you.' They had come by this time to where old Mr. Touchett was sitting, and he slowly got up from his chair to introduce himself. "'My mother has arrived,' said Ralph, "'and this is Miss Archer.' The old man placed his two hands on her shoulders, looked at her a moment with extreme benevolence, and then gallantly kissed her. "'It's a great pleasure for me to see you here, but I wish you had given us a chance to receive you.' "'Oh, we were received,' said the girl. There were about a dozen servants in the hall, and there was an old woman curtsying at the gate. "'We can do better than that, if we have notice.' and the old man stood there smiling, rubbing his hands, and slowly shaking his head at her. But Mrs. Touchett doesn't like receptions. She went straight to her room. Yes, and locked herself in. She always does that. Well, I suppose I shall see her next week. And Mrs. Touchett's husband slowly resumed his former posture. Before that, said Miss Archer, she's coming down to dinner at eight o'clock. "'Don't you forget a quarter to seven, she added, turning with a smile to Ralph. "'What's to happen at a quarter to seven? "'I'm to see my mother,' said Ralph. "'Ah, happy boy,' the old man commented. "'You must sit down, you must have some tea,' he observed to his wife's niece. "'They gave me some tea in my room the moment I got here,' this young lady answered. "'I'm sorry you're out of health,' she added, resting her eyes upon her venerable host. "'Oh, I'm an old man, my dear. It's time for me to be old, but I shall be the better for having you here.' She had been looking all around her again, at the lawn, the great trees, the reedy, silvery Thames, the beautiful old house, and while engaged in this survey she had made room for it in her companions a comprehensiveness of observation easily conceivable on the part of a young woman who was evidently both intelligent and excited. 
She had seated herself and had put away the little dog. Her white hands in her lap were folded upon her black dress. Her head was erect, her eye lighted, her flexible figure turned itself easily this way and that, in sympathy with the alertness with which she evidently caught impressions. Her impressions were numerous, and they were all reflected in a clear, still smile. I've never seen anything so beautiful as this. It's looking very well, said Mr. Touchett. I know the way it strikes you. I've been through all that. But you're very beautiful yourself, he added, with a politeness by no means crudely jocular, and with a happy consciousness that his advanced age gave him the privilege of saying such things, even to young persons who might possibly take alarm at them. What degree of alarm this young person took need not be exactly measured. She instantly rose, however, with a blush which was not a refutation. "'Oh, yes, of course, I'm lovely,' she returned, with a quick laugh. "'How old is your house? Is it Elizabethan?' "'It's early Tudor,' said Ralph Touchett. She turned toward him, watching his face. "'Early Tudor? How very delightful! And I suppose there are a great many others.' "'There are many much better ones.' "'Don't say that, my son,' the old man protested. "'There's nothing better than this.' "'I've got a very good one. I think in some respects it's rather better,' said Lord Warburton, who as yet had not spoken, but who had kept an attentive eye upon Miss Archer. He slightly inclined himself, smiling. He had an excellent manner with women. The girl appreciated in an instant. She had not forgotten that this was Lord Warburton. "'I should very much like to show it to you,' he added." "'Don't you believe him?' cried the old man. "'Don't look at it. It's a wretched old barrack, not to be compared with this.' "'I don't know. I can't judge,' said the girl, smiling at Lord Warburton. In this discussion Ralph Touchett took no interest whatever. He stood with his hands in his pockets, looking greatly as if he should like to renew his conversation with his new-found cousin. "'Are you very fond of dogs?' he inquired, by way of beginning." He seemed to recognize that it was an awkward beginning for a clever man. "'Very fond of them, indeed.' "'You must keep the terrier, you know,' he went on, still awkwardly. "'I'll keep him while I'm here with pleasure.' "'That will be for a long time, I hope.' "'You're very kind. I hardly know. My aunt must settle that.' "'I'll settle it with her at a quarter to seven. And Ralph looked at his watch again. "'I'm glad to be here at all,' said the girl. "'I don't believe you allow things to be settled for you.' "'Oh, yes, if they're settled as I like them.' "'I shall settle this as I like it,' said Ralph. "'It's most unaccountable that we should have never known you.' "'I was there. You had only to come and see me.' "'There? Where do you mean?' "'In the United States, in New York and Albany and other American places.' "'I've been there all over, but I never saw you. I can't make it out.' Miss Archer just hesitated. It was because there had been some disagreement between your mother and my father, after my mother's death, which took place when I was a child. In consequence of it, we never expected to see you.' "'Ah, but I don't embrace all my mother's quarrels. Heaven forbid!' the young man cried. "'You've lately lost your father,' he went on more gravely. Yes, more than a year ago. After that my aunt was very kind to me. She came to see me and proposed that I should come with her to Europe. 
"'I see,' said Ralph. "'She has adopted you.' "'Adopted me?' The girl stared, and her blush came back to her, together with a momentary look of pain, which gave her interlocutor some alarm. He had underestimated the effect of his words. Lord Warburton, who appeared constantly desirous of a nearer view of Miss Archer, strolled toward the two cousins at the moment, and as he did so she rested her wider eyes on him. "'Oh, no, she has not adopted me. I'm not a candidate for adoption.' "'I beg a thousand pardons,' Ralph murmured. "'I meant—I meant—' He hardly knew what he meant. "'You meant she has taken me up. Yes, she likes to take people up. She has been very kind to me, but—' she added, with a certain visible eagerness of desire to be explicit. "'I'm very fond of my liberty.' "'Are you talking about Mrs. Touchett?' the old man called out from his chair. "'Come here, my dear, and tell me about her. I'm always thankful for information.' The girl hesitated again, smiling. "'She's really very benevolent,' she answered, after which she went over to her uncle, whose mirth was excited by her words." Lord Warburton was left standing with Ralph Touchett, to whom in a moment he said, "'You wished a while ago to see my idea of an interesting woman. There it is.'" End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 Mrs. Touchett was certainly a person of many oddities, of which her behaviour on returning to her husband's house after many months was a notable specimen. She had her own way of doing all that she did, and this is the simplest description of a character which, although by no means without liberal motions, rarely succeeded in giving an impression of suavity. Mrs. Touchett might do a great deal of good, but she never pleased. This way of her own, of which she was so fond, was not intrinsically offensive. It was just unmistakably distinguished from the ways of others. The edges of her conduct were so very clear-cut that for susceptible persons it sometimes had a knife-like effect. The hard fineness came out in her deportment during the first hours of her return from America, under circumstances in which it might have seemed that her first act would have been to exchange greetings with her husband and son. Mrs. Touchett, for reasons which she deemed excellent, always retired on such occasions into impenetrable seclusion, postponing the more sentimental ceremony until she had repaired the disorder of dress with a completeness which had the less reason to be of high importance as neither beauty nor vanity were concerned in it. She was a plain-faced old woman, without graces and without any great elegance, but with an extreme respect for her own motives. She was usually prepared to explain these, when the explanation was asked as a favour, and in such a case they proved totally different from those that had been attributed to her. She was virtually separated from her husband, but she appeared to perceive nothing irregular in the situation. It had become clear at an early stage of their community that they should never desire the same thing at the same moment, and this appearance had prompted her to rescue disagreement from the vulgar realm of accident. She did what she could to erect it into a law, a much more edifying aspect of it, by going to live in Florence, where she bought a house and established herself, and by leaving her husband to take care of the English branch of his bank. This arrangement greatly pleased her. It was so felicitously definite. It struck her husband in the same light, in a foggy square in London, 
where it was at times the most definite fact he discerned but he would have preferred that such unnatural things should have a greater vagueness to agree to disagree had cost him an effort he was ready to agree to almost anything but that and saw no reason why either assent or dissent should be so terribly consistent mrs touchett indulged in no regrets nor speculations and usually came once a year to spend a month with her husband a period during which she apparently took pains to convince him that she had adopted the right system she was not fond of the english style of life and had three or four reasons for it to which she currently alluded they bore upon minor points of that ancient order but for mrs touchett they amply justified non-residence she detested bread sauce which as she said looked like a poultice and tasted like soap she objected to the consumption of beer by her maid-servants and she affirmed that the british laundress mrs touchett was very particular about the appearance of her linen was not a mistress of her art at fixed intervals she paid a visit to her own country but this last had been longer than any of its predecessors she had taken up her niece there was little doubt of that one wet afternoon some four months earlier than the occurrence lately narrated this young lady had been seated alone with a book to say she was so occupied is to say that her solitude did not press upon her for her love of knowledge had a fertilizing quality and her imagination was strong there was at this time however a want of fresh taste in her situation which the arrival of an unexpected visitor did much to correct the visitor had not been announced the girl heard her at last walking about the adjoining room it was an old house at albany a large square double house with a notice of sale in the windows of one of the lower apartments there were two entrances one of which had long been out of use but had never been removed they were exactly alike large white doors with an arched frame and wide side lights perched upon little stoops of red stone which descended sidewise to the brick pavements of the street the two houses together formed a single dwelling the party wall having been removed and the rooms placed in communication these rooms above stairs were extremely numerous and were painted all over exactly alike in a yellowish white which had grown sallow with time on the third floor there was a sort of arched passage connecting the two sides of the house which isabel and her sisters used in their childhood to call the tunnel and which though it was short and well lighted always seemed to the girl to be strange and lonely especially on winter afternoons she had been in the house at different periods as a child in those days her grandmother lived there then there had been an absence of ten years followed by a return to albany before her father's death her grandmother old mrs archer had exercised chiefly within the limits of the family a large hospitality in the early period and the little girls often spent weeks under her roof weeks of which isabel had the happiest memory the manner of life was different from that of her own home larger more plentiful practically more festal the discipline of the nursery was delightfully vague and the opportunity of listening to the conversation of one's elders which with isabel was a highly valued pleasure almost unbounded there was a constant coming and going 
her grandmother's sons and daughters and their children appeared to be in the enjoyment of standing invitations to arrive and remain so that the house offered to a certain extent the appearance of a bustling provincial inn kept by a gentle old landlady who sighed a great deal and never presented a bill isabel of course knew nothing about bills but even as a child she thought her grandmother's home romantic there was a covered piazza behind it furnished with a swing which was a source of tremulous interest and beyond this was a long garden sloping down to the stable and containing peach trees of barely credible familiarity isabel had stayed with her grandmother at various seasons but somehow all her visits had a flavour of peaches on the other side across the street was an old house that was called the dutch house a peculiar structure dating from the earliest colonial times composed of bricks that had been painted yellow crowned with a gable that was pointed out to strangers defended by a rickety wooden paling and standing sidewise to the street it was occupied by a primary school for children of both sexes kept or rather let go by a demonstrative lady of whom isabel's chief recollection was that her hair was fastened with strange bedroomy combs at the temples and that she was the widow of some one of consequence the little girl had been offered the opportunity of laying a foundation of knowledge in this establishment but having spent a single day in it she had protested against its laws and had been allowed to stay at home where in the september days when the windows of the dutch house were open she used to hear the hum of childish voices repeating the multiplication table an incident in which the elation of liberty and the pain of exclusion were indistinguishably mingled the foundation of her knowledge was really laid in the idleness of her grandmother's house where as most of the other inmates were not reading people she had uncontrolled use of a library full of books with frontispieces which she used to climb upon a chair to take down when she had found one to her taste she was guided in the selection chiefly by the frontispiece she carried it into a mysterious apartment which lay beyond the library and which was called traditionally no one ever knew why the office whose office it had been and at what period it had flourished she never learned it was enough for her that it contained an echo and a pleasant musty smell and that it was a chamber of disgrace for old pieces of furniture whose infirmities were not always apparent so that the disgrace seemed unmerited and rendered them victims of injustice and with which in the manner of children she had established relations almost human certainly dramatic there was an old haircloth sofa in especial to which she had confided a hundred childish sorrows the place owed much of its mysterious melancholy to the fact that it was properly entered from the second floor of the house the door that had been condemned and that it was secured by bolts which a particularly slender little girl found it impossible to slide she knew that this silent motionless portal opened into the street if the side lights had not been filled with green paper she might have looked out upon the little brown stoop and the well-worn brick pavement but she had no wish to look out for this would have interfered with her theory that there was a strange unseen place on the other side a place which became to the child's imagination according to its different moods a region of delight or of terror 
it was in the office still that isabel was sitting on that melancholy afternoon of early spring which i have just mentioned at this time she might have had the whole house to choose from and the room she had selected was the most depressed of its scenes she had never opened the bolted door nor removed the green paper renewed by other hands from its side-lights she had never assured herself that the vulgar street lay beyond a crude cold rain fell heavily the springtime was indeed an appeal and it seemed a cynical insincere appeal to patience isabel however gave as little heed as possible to cosmic treacheries she kept her eyes on her book and tried to fix her mind it had lately occurred to her that her mind was a good deal of a vagabond and she had spent much ingenuity in training it to a military step and teaching it to advance to halt to retreat to perform even more complicated manoeuvres at the word of command just now she had given it marching orders and had been trudging over the sandy plains of a history of german thought suddenly she became aware of a step very different from her own intellectual pace she listened a little and perceived that someone was moving in the library which communicated with the office it struck her first as the step of a person from whom she was looking for a visit then almost immediately announced itself as the tread of a woman and a stranger her possible visitor being neither it had an inquisitive experimental quality which suggested that it would not stop short of the threshold of the office and in fact the doorway of this apartment was presently occupied by a lady who paused there and looked very hard at our heroine she was a plain elderly woman dressed in a comprehensive waterproof mantle she had a face with a good deal of rather violent point oh she began is that where you usually sit she looked about at the heterogeneous chairs and tables not when i have visitors said isabel getting up to receive the intruder she directed their course back to the library while the visitor continued to look about her you seem to have plenty of other rooms they're in rather better condition but everything's immensely worn have you come to look at the house isabel asked the servant will show it to you send her away i don't want to buy it she has probably gone to look for you and is wandering about upstairs she didn't seem at all intelligent you had better tell her it's no matter and then since the girl stood there hesitating and wondering this unexpected critic said to her abruptly i suppose you're one of the daughters isabel thought she had very strange manners it depends upon whose daughters you mean the late mr archers and my poor sisters ah said isabel slowly you must be our crazy aunt lydia is that what your father told you to call me i'm your aunt lydia but i'm not at all crazy i haven't a delusion and which of the daughters are you i'm the youngest of the three and my name's isabel yes the others are lillian and edith and are you the prettiest i haven't the least idea said the girl i think you must be and in this way the aunt and the niece made friends the aunt had quarrelled years before with her brother-in-law after the death of her sister taking him to task for the manner in which he brought up his three girls being a high-tempered man he had requested her to mind her own business and she had taken him at his word for many years she held no communication with him 
and after his death had addressed not a word to his daughters, who had been bred in that disrespectful view of her which we have just seen Isabel betray. Mrs. Touchett's behaviour was, as usual, perfectly deliberate. She intended to go to America to look after her investments, with which her husband, in spite of his great financial position, had nothing to do, and would take advantage of this opportunity to inquire into the condition of her nieces. There was no need of writing, for she should attach no importance to any account of them she should elicit by letter. She believed, always, in seeing for oneself. Isabel found, however, that she knew a good deal about them, and knew about the marriage of the two elder girls, knew that their poor father had left very little money, but that the house in Albany, which had passed into his hands, was to be sold for their benefit, knew, finally, that Edmund Ludlow, Lillian's husband, had taken upon himself to attend to this matter, in consideration of which the young couple, who had come to Albany during Mr. Arch's illness, were remaining there for the present, and, as well as Isabel herself, occupying the old place. "'How much money do you expect for it?' Mrs. Touchett asked of her companion, who had brought her to sit in the front parlour, which she had inspected without enthusiasm. "'I haven't the least idea,' said the girl. "'That's the second time you've said that to me,' her aunt rejoined, "'and yet you don't look at all stupid.' "'I'm not stupid, but I don't know anything about money.' "'Yes, that's the way you were brought up, as if you were to inherit a million. What have you, in point of fact, inherited?' "'I really can't tell you. You must ask Edmund and Lillian. They'll be back in half an hour.' "'In Florence we should call it a very bad house,' said Mrs. Touchett, "'but here, I dare say, it will bring a high price. "'It ought to make a considerable sum for each of you. "'In addition to that you must have something else. "'It's most extraordinary you're not knowing. "'The position's of value, "'and they'll probably pull it down and make a row of shops. "'I wonder you don't do that yourself. "'You might let the shops to great advantage.' "'Isabel stared.' The idea of letting shops was new to her. "'I hope they won't pull it down,' she said. "'I'm extremely fond of it.' "'I don't see what makes you fond of it. Your father died here.' "'Yes, but I don't dislike it for that,' the girl rather strangely returned. "'I like places in which things have happened, even if they're sad things. A great many people have died here. The place has been full of life.' "'Is that what you call being full of life?' I mean, full of experience, of people's feelings and sorrows, and not of their sorrows only, for I've been very happy here as a child. You should go to Florence, if you like houses in which things have happened, especially deaths. I live in an old palace in which three people have been murdered, three that were known, and I don't know how many more besides. In an old palace, Isabel repeated. "'Yes, my dear, a very different affair from this. "'This is very bourgeois.' "'Isabel felt some emotion, "'for she had always thought highly of her grandmother's house. "'But the emotion was of a kind which led her to say, "'I should like very much to go to Florence.' "'Well, if you'll be good and do everything I tell you, "'I'll take you there,' Mrs. Touchett declared. "'Our young woman's emotion deepened. "'She flushed a little and smiled at her aunt in silence.' "'Do everything you tell me. I don't think I can promise that.' "'No, you don't look like a person of that sort. You're fond of your own way, but it's not for me to blame you.' 
and yet to go to florence the girl exclaimed in a moment i'd promise almost anything edmund and lillian were slow to return and mrs touchett had an hour's uninterrupted talk with her niece who found her a strange and interesting figure a figure essentially almost the first she had ever met she was as eccentric as isabel had always supposed and hitherto whenever the girl had heard people described as eccentric she had thought of them as offensive or alarming the term had always suggested to her something grotesque and even sinister but her aunt made it a matter of high but easy irony or comedy and led her to ask herself if the common tone which was all she had known had ever been as interesting no one certainly had on any occasion so held her as this little thin-lipped bright-eyed foreign-looking woman who retrieved an insignificant appearance by a distinguished manner and sitting there in a well-worn waterproof talked with striking familiarity of the courts of europe there was nothing flighty about mrs touchett but she recognized no social superiors and judging the great ones of the earth in a way that spoke of this enjoyed the consciousness of making an impression on a candid and susceptible mind isabel at first had answered a good many questions and it was from her answers apparently that mrs touchett derived a high opinion of her intelligence but after this she had asked a good many and her aunt's answers whatever turn they took struck her as food for deep reflection mrs touchett waited for the return of the other niece as long as she thought reasonable but as at six o'clock mrs ludlow had not come in she prepared to take her departure your sister must be a great gossip is she accustomed to staying out so many hours you've been out almost as long as she isabel replied she can have left the house but a short time before you came in mrs touchett looked at the girl without resentment she appeared to enjoy a bold retort and to be disposed to be gracious perhaps she hasn't had so good an excuse as i tell her at any rate that she must come and see me this evening at that horrid hotel she may bring her husband if she likes but she needn't bring you i shall see plenty of you later End of chapter three